Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today for a very exciting episode, Quest for Startups and Digital Healthcare Space. And I'm here with two excellent guests, Robert Middendorf, partner at Norwest, and Ambar Bhattacharya, managing director at Maverick Ventures. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. Welcome to the prestigious WeWork studio. Uh, Super excited to be here. Thanks, Eric, for the invite. Awesome. So why don't we start with some introductions? Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Maverick, a little bit about what you do at Norwest, and what your respective investment theses are in uh, digital health in terms of what you look for right now. You know, so I joined Maverick about three years ago. You know, we have two parts of our fund. One's, one's a big hedge fund. Um, it's focused on public investing. Uh, when I joined, we formed a, a, a separate venture fund um, called Maverick Ventures. It's an evergreen fund. It's about $400 million in size. We're excited to focus half of, half of that effort on healthcare, uh, mostly in digital health, health services, as well as a bit of life sciences. I spent a lot of time there, focused on early stage investing, anything from seed all the way through maturity. So thinking about investing very actively on every stage of, of a company's life cycle as it makes that transition from from concept to uh, sustainable. Com- I'm one of the partners at Norwest. I lead investments uh, very similar to Ambar in, in the digital health, healthcare IT or health tech space, um, diagnostics. And uh, we also do some life science investing in the device space. We write checks between really seed to 100 million. So we tend we tend to be more series A, B, C and some growth equity, do fewer public seeds than some other firms. We have about 1.5 billion in the current funds, 7 billion overall. And, and uh, we try to make about two to four investments a year. We're going to begin the, uh, you know, we're zoom in before zooming out in terms of our request for startups. Let's say you guys were still in the game, as some people say, uh, that you're in a very different game. Some, you know, entrepreneurs wanting to build companies in the digital health space. And let's say that you had uh, all the talent you needed to pursue any of these ideas and all the domain expertise you needed to pursue any sort of idea within digital health. So it's not me as Ambar, me as Robert, just me as any person with this right skill sets and right knowledge, what opportunities would you be most excited about today? Like, or how would you think about what idea you would pursue as an entrepreneur if you if you look at potential for for upside and uh, availability in the market right now? Yeah, I'll take a shot at it first. Um, you know, for me, I think there's three three big themes that I'm I'm excited about, and I'd be torn between if I were if I were to you know put the shoes back on. Um, you know, one would be in uh, in consumer. I think this is actually the first you know, real moment where direct-to-consumer healthcare um, has an opportunity to create, you know, really enormous companies. Um, we've seen a bit of it, you know, with, with companies like a One Medical, um, you know, with companies like a Forward. Um, you're seeing a lot in the pharmacy space with companies like NewRx and Hims and a few others. But I think we're, we're starting to see that con- consumer-patient relationship change. And I think I would be really interested, you know, in exploring other areas there. And that that's one. Two is anything in AI. You know, I think I'm maybe one of the few people who thinks actually the, the role of AI in healthcare has been understated. <laughs> and, you know, there's probably even more promise than people, people think there. You know, healthcare is a data. So it's a data problem at, and at, at the core of it, whether you're on the physician side or, you know, pay, provider side or the pharma side or insurance side, you know, it, it is fundamentally all about data and just the advances in uh, AI and machine learning 
it's pretty unprecedented, and I think it's going to continue. If you look at some of the most research, recent research there, that would continue. We could talk about all the subsets of that, you know, I think are most exciting in a second, but that's that's been great. I think last, um, you know, is, is in the monitoring space. Um, you know, everyone has been talking about, you know, these transactional relationships with, with patients and, and us. But I think when we look at all the new technology we have now to look at a patient over time, really takes this concept of, you know, population health management, you know, which has been a term that's been thrown around a lot in the last decade or so about how do you manage a whole overall cohort of patients. But I think now we can do it on an individualized basis. You know, we do kind of, you know, person health management and you can leverage things like an iPhone, things like location, um, you know, food receipts, you know, visits, gym visits, anything to help think through what that, uh, what that monitoring aspect is with a few recent changes in reimbursement codes. You know, uh, there actually are ways to monetize this for the first time ever. And so I'd be really curious about how to think through you know, new models around remote monitoring. Yeah, I, and we share a lot of the same themes. I would say the first thing I'd focus on is generally looking for things that are five to ten x faster, better, cheaper, more efficacious, or safer than what we have today. The reason for that is clearly anything that's a little bit less than that is not really not worth the time of the entrepreneur or the investor because it's just so challenging in healthcare to get uh, innovation to market. But when it's there, it gets very sticky. In terms of themes, I think one of my overriding themes. Um, and I think it's probably true even outside of healthcare, um, is the automation of human labor. So whether that's with machine learning or AI or rules-based systems, we have the computational power, we have digital data, we have the affinity for this technology now where we can see automation of labor in the services aspect of healthcare, whether it's on the payer pro provider side or the pharma side, which really will initially create enormous margin, which will be captured in valuations. And then over time, we'll see some, you know, 10, 15 years from now, price decline, and we'll see real efficiency gains. That's number one. Two is new care models that are vertically integrated services. So rather than the painful way, and as a physician, I understand this pain, but but the painful way of getting diagnosed and then getting a prescription and going somewhere else to get that prescription filled and then talking to someone else about paying for that service, having that all in one, which is where we see the consumer market you know, has been for decades now is, is a key part. So um, the first, uh, you know, I think is, um, uh, you know, the automation of labor. The second is vertically integrated models. And the third is really, and I would say this is leveraging the data we have today. And this is much more of an AI machine learning, uh, leveraging it to improve any of those quant uh, quantities I talked about initially. So we can see this in, in terms of a combination of the first two um, themes, but it's really anything where you can take existing data, for example, in genomics. Uh, or data that we're developing to more precisely diagnose and modulate therapy. Uh, companies like Foundation Medicine, which was just you know acquired, um, are are kind of later stage examples of that. Cool. So before zooming into some of those examples, and want to want to stay macro. Are there themes or ideas that are do not build lists or that you wouldn't pursue? That you're like, man, this is just so hard. Categorically, I can't do it anymore, or I can't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it on my worst enemy or something. I'll take, I mean, wearables, I think is one. Non-clinical wearables, I think are amazing. I have a bunch. I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit of one and done, or maybe every two years you update your device like a watch. But I think from a venture perspective, doesn't mean that there aren't great companies there. From a venture perspective, it doesn't have the scalable hockey stick returns anymore that we saw initially in the market. We were successful in a couple of our investments in the wearable space, but those were due to the teams and timing. And I think that that timing is kind of done. So that would that'd be one. Yeah, you know, I, I would I would echo that. I think there's I think now, you know, between all the big companies that are doing interesting things in wearables, I think it's 
we're always open-minded, but that's, I think that, that'd be a tough one to, to start off with at first. You know, I'd say, you know, the areas I'd avoid are the ones that have already been, you know, combed over pretty heavily, you know, uh, diabetes prevention, you know, is, is one where there are over a dozen companies in the space, all of them well-funded. All Even of them. our friend Henrik? Even, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, but, you know, Robert's Investor in Omada, you know, and there's, you know, companies like Noom and Solera and, you know, so on and so forth. And there's so many of these companies that have already had the benefit of three, five, seven years of attacking that that model. I don't know if there needs to be the 13th or 14th DPP model out there, even though program is clinically well-reviewed, there is a payment model for it. And in still ways, there's still a bit of a land grab, but, you know, I, I, would, I would steer entrepreneurs away from that. I'm curious how you guys think about business model, business model repetition. Um, now we're zooming a little bit. You know, you're an investor in One Medical, right? How do you feel about all these One Medical for X's? Would you invest in one of them? Do you think you know people should be building them? You know, I'm I'm a huge fan actually. I think the the genius part about what the folks at One Medical did is that they hit upon one of the key things I think people have forgotten in healthcare, but seems to be very obvious in other sectors, which is segmentation. And I think the more we can focus on segmenting different patient populations or just general populations, the better results will be. You know, One Medical, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, what they do is, that, you know, they charge a membership fee, you know, charge 150 bucks or 200 bucks a year for people to have better access to physicians or nurse practitioners or PAs whether it's via their app or whether it's in person, next day appointments, same day appointments. And they have hold a very high standard for quality of, of clinician that, that they will see. And they were amongst the first to pioneer this, you know, direct primary care model where, where they're targeting memberships. Ford has taken it one step further with even a higher price point, you know, segmenting even one, you know, you know, to, to a higher degree in terms of people who can afford this. But, you know, with a different value prop, I think we will see more and more of these. I think if, you know, and we'll, we can segment it off different disease areas or therapeutic areas. So you think about, you know, could a, a one medical for diabetes work or could a one medical for muscular skeletal work or could a one medical for mental health work? I think actually the answer is yes for all of those. I think there's enough pain points in the model that exist today in terms of access and quality and affordability that entrepreneurs should be should be making these models. Um, you take mental health, for example, we've seen in the last you know, year, year and a half, a handful of these, you know, one medical for therapists pop up. And I think it makes total sense, you know, to, the wait list to get into therapists in the Bay Area is, you know, weeks, if not months, you know, accessibility is, you know, in the middle of the workday, forget late at night or on the weekends. Um, and none of them take insurance, you know, or sub 10% do. Uh, it's really hard, I think, if you, if you, if you, if you want to access that. And so I think people have shown in, you know, in, in the early data, you know, an ability to to actually want to pay for these models. And I think we'll see more and more. Yeah. So to give a few examples, you know, uh, we all know, you know, two chairs on the mental health side. I think they just raised an A, they're doing strong motion clinical, which we invested in on the musculoskeletal side. And then Tia, we haven't, I wish we invested in, but just, just friends of ours. How do you think, both of you think at, at the series A, like, or, or whatever stage you want to invest, what would need to be true for you to invest in one of those? Like, what would you need to see? Yeah, I think at the at the Series A stage for for these models, I think the the core part of you know what it takes for a seed investor is to come in with this vision, you know, and say, hey, this is this is a concept that might work, um, and it could be a, a clinician, could be a tech entrepreneur, could be some a product person, and I think in that course of the seed, I think what we'd want to see is them take that concept and bring it to execution. And have their early signs of unit economics, being like, hey, you know, we want to have a nationwide set of clinics focused on MSK or focused on mental health. 
But with our seed money, we've popped open the first one or the second one or the third one. And here, here are the early signs that it's working. And then from that, you know, we as, as investors can say, okay, it's, it's gone, you know, and part of it has been de-risked. Like the entrepreneurs can build, they can be capital efficient, they can attract both supply and demand, supply being clinicians, demand being patients. And then you can put some for, more fuel on the fire to make it work. I think in health services, you know, I think that's been kind of the key towards towards scaling. Um, and I think what the Series B bet would be and the Series C bet would be down the road would be how do you actually layer technology onto this to actually scale it such that the, you know, the clinics of the future have a different gross margin profile, different EBITDA profile than the clinics of the past. And I think that's that's really where, you know, we can leverage some of the AI themes and data themes we talked about earlier. But that, that's what I would look for. And moving further, did you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah. I mean, I think on the Series A side of any of those companies, we have an investment in Talkspace. We did the Series B is looking at the combination of big markets that are able to be transformed with a, by a new medium. So whether it was trains or TVs or telephones, in this case now we've got mobile devices. Can you transform the specialty? Some specialties you can't transform very easily. Psychiatry and psychology tend to be ones that you can. Pair that big market transformation with unit economics that make total sense. That was one of our big wins on talk, uh, one of Talkspace big ones that we were uh, interested in. And I, I think the third is clinical operation superiority. So um, we can't forget that these companies are in their at their very core clinical operations companies, which require an enormous amount of understanding of the existing infrastructure of regulation that allows these businesses to operate in the US. So I think we look for all three. I think probably the hardest to demonstrate uh, is the unit economic question, because you need to, again, figure out how to take something in the human labor side and move it Without eliminating human labor, move it to a, uh, a model that's not 20% margin, but 80% with technology that's placed in a very sophisticated way into the uh, in, uh, environment. Zooming, moving further within consumer, how about the uh, newer X for X model? You know, they obviously started with you know birth control on demand. They prescribe and deliver. We've seen a bunch of companies say we're NERX, but for X, you know, HIMS, for example, for erectile dysfunction, others. How do you sort of think about that? as a strategy or business model? You know, it's interesting, you know, um, I think one of, the, one of the things that we've seen across the board, both in healthcare and in tech, is, you know, the different types of expectations that the millennial customer has. I think if you rewind the clock five, six years, you think people weren't necessarily expecting to get an Amazon delivery for everything in the mail the next day or the day after. They weren't expecting to get, you know, their groceries delivered via Instacart or, you know, Fresh Direct or whoever, you know, the same day, you know, and they weren't expecting, you know, Stitch Fix to come in with, you know, a whole wardrobe for you curated every month. I think what's happened, you know, is that that has really reframed expectations for this. And going to a retail pharmacy is, in my, my, my personal opinion, is going to end up like the rest of retail, which is, which is, dead. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's, uh, and that's unfortunate for a lot of the incumbents here. And I think you're starting to see them trying to figure out what they want to do in that space. But I think that that's the sign of the times. I think there's, there's a lot less, um, affiliation that, you know, millennials have with, with going to Walgreens or CVS or does Amazon um, win that space? Yeah. I, th- I think it'll be a competitive player. You know, obviously pill packs an interesting potential, uh, acquisition that's, you know, obviously in the works right now. Um, but I, I think they'll they'll be a real player. But I think you know what what and if that happens, I think it's even better for some of these you know direct to consumer brands because what ends up happening is you know we'll we'll pick you know we'll pick a few sectors. I mean you know you know birth controls obviously for for a certain age of a, of a woman. Um, uh, 
But, you know, and we'll call it millennials right now, but I think there's this millennial halo that happens too is where, you know, if someone is, you know, if their daughter or their son is used to getting or their grandson or granddaughter is used to getting their medications in the mail and getting it nicely packaged, et cetera, you know, I think that has an impact on their parents. And you start, you'll, I think you'll start to see the 35 to 55 demographic start to switch over. And then as you get to the seniors, you'll start to see it, you know, switch over over time. What, one of the areas that ha- that's had the least innovation in healthcare is in mail order pharmacy, right? Which is, you know, one way of looking at what the, you know, what all these players are in some shape or form. And mail order pharmacy percentage rates have been really flat over the last 10 years, even flat to declining. And that's because, you know, the large incumbents, Express Scripts, Caremark, others haven't innovated on product. They haven't innovated on distribution. They don't have that direct relationship to consumers that a lot of these brands do. And I think what you'll end up seeing over the course of time is that these brands, which we now think of Nurex as a birth control brand or Hims as an as an ED brand or a hair brand, I think you'll start seeing those as wedges into much larger brands, right? Into you know, you know, Nurex, you know, you know, could that be a women's health brand, right? Similar to what what Tia is trying to do, right? For a, for a Hims or whoever else, you know, could that be a larger men's health brand? And I think that is the broader opportunity here because there is this vacancy. In in the relationship, a lot of these people have with the healthcare system at at this critical age, and if you can latch onto that, you know, in that eighteen to thirty five year old range, you know, you might have a chance to actually have a much longer LTV than originally than you might have originally expected. And I, I had an episode with Nurks and Tia on my podcast, and it was interesting because they are both trying to be you know women's health brands, but they've gone deliberately gotten you picked different business models to do that. I think. Do you have a a preference. So does one, do you have a preference between those two approaches? And two, I'm curious if, if there are, you know, we brought up two, you know, X for Y type business, you know, business models, but are there others that you think, wow, this has worked in this general case or in this specific use case? I want to see that business model, that X for Y replicated across other segments. You know, like an, an example, you know, you know, my, my parents are diabetic, right? And so, you know, they, um, you know, they started off taking, metformin, you know, and a bunch of other drugs. Now they're built on insulin. And I think, you know, th- there's even a barrier there, right? You know, for a couple of seniors who have to take insulin, you know, how do you make sure you're measuring the right way? You know, are these glucometers appropriately measure and tracking what they do? And that's on the very extreme of, of healthcare, right? It's like a very invasive injection you have to take multiple times a day. But could there be a better experience around that? I think the, I think the answer is yes. Like almost certainly the answer is yes. You know, it is, you know, making sure you're actually tracking on an individual basis when you actually need a refill, right? So people aren't, you know, hoarding, you know, insulin at the wrong time or, you know, sharing it, you know, amongst loved ones. I mean, things happen like this. And so I think you just ma- reimagine the patient experience, reimagine like the delivery experience. I think you can do it, I think, across a bunch of different brands uh, and a bunch of different, you know, medication types. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on that, that whole space. Um, and I think as, if you do that, you'll start rethinking of, okay, if, if you're this, if this is where you're fulfilling that as a pharmacy, you know, what is the role of a pharmacist? What is the role of a, of an overseeing physician there? You know, is it, is it telemedicine you attach to it? whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, you attach it to their existing endocrinologist or PCP, you start seeing it as more of a holistic part of the health system five, seven, 10 years from now than you know, we look at today and it just might be a little bit little bit of it. I think a couple other things on the on these vertically integrated models, and I, I think they are very interesting, but I also think that the closer they approximate to kind of um, kind of pill mills, if you will, the, the harder they are to defend. So I think there are some examples of businesses like Curology that are focused on 
treatment conditions in, in say, dermatology that configure their offering, um, actually configure the medicines for the patient. The IP around that and the, um, the approach to the product makes that much harder to replicate in the bricks and mortar world, or even in a mail order pharmacy world than, than, uh, say birth control, which is largely on autopilot for, for a large reason. I think the other thing to be careful with in these spaces, and, and we tend to think of it with the, you know, typical kill zone strategy, which is we see enormous blue sky or blue water opportunities for lots of companies in the consumer space. There are a number where we probably don't want to throw money because it's literally in the way of, of one of these strategics. So in the can, in a case of Amazon now with, if that uh, acquisition goes through, that's, that's a very interesting position for Amazon to be in. But also take note that Walgreens and CVS deliver. So even though millennials aren't using the app yet, and they may not, the capabilities of a bricks and mortar pharmacy with 6,000 locations in the US to deliver your, your house within an hour is, is going to be hard to match in a tech company that's just starting off. So I think um, companies that configure their product like a Curology or others make it harder to replicate and uh, and probably will create a stickier business model to your point. that I think one, one question you asked was, we certainly love subscription models where labor is not a function of cost at every month uh, of, inter- of interaction. Yeah. I, th- I think one thing to add to that, I mean, we're talking about therapeutics is kind of legacy per- therapeutics of, you know, kind of uh, small molecules or large molecules. But there's this whole world of digital therapeutics, which is, you know, uh, really on the rise right now. And we'd certainly love to see more entrepreneurs there. You know, that'd be one of my, you know, top areas in terms of how can you use, you know, some of the data that's been created to actually create a new digital therapeutic. We've had some early leaders in the space, paratherapeutics, Achille, um, have done a fantastic job of working with the FDA, getting, you know, cleared products, um, you know, working with pharma companies to see, you know, how, uh, how you might actually want to have a combined product or, you know, a standalone product. But I think there, there is a world here where if you, again, if you fast forward three years, five years, 20 years, you know, you will have your, your pharmacy, you know, of, of the past that's delivering, you know, your small molecules or large molecules, you know, whether it's via mail or the same day delivery, et cetera. And you'll have your digital therapeutics too, and that's going to be delivered in a whole different way, right? And this is a whole different, you know, call it supply chain or data chain that you'll need there to make sure that these digital therapeutics are the ones that are FDA approved or the ones that are personalized for Eric or Robert or me, you know, making sure that they're actually being adhered to. If they're not, you actually know because it's actually attached to an app or something of that sort. And so I think there's a whole ecosystem there that, you know, we're in the first half of the first inning in, in, in reality. And I think it is almost inconceivable to me to think that five years from now we'll be sitting here and the digital therapeutic space will not have matured into something really interesting. And I think you'll see spinoffs. You'll see digital diagnostics, which are already happening, digital vaccines, digital, you know, you, you name it. I think you'll, you'll see variations of it, which may sound totally crazy today. But I think sort of digital therapeutics five years ago, right? Totally. And I think you'll, you'll see that trend for and, sure. And so say more about the opportunity there in terms of maybe what are those two companies doing that that's exciting to you or how should entrepreneurs who want to go pursue that, although even though it's not native to them, wh- what advice do you have for them? Like, where within should they be focusing? Yeah, I think I think in healthcare, there's uh, there's always this, you know, kind of yin yang of, you know, how much do you work with the system when you're trying to develop something new and, you know, how much do you try to, you know, stay under the radar until you have something to prove. And I think what um, what there is to learn from, you know, Pear and Achille, you know, these two companies is is twofold. One is they've worked within the system, right? So they've run clinical trials, right, that are, you know, run at, you know, kind of pharma grade, 
let's call it. Um, and they have good endpoints, right? And so they can actually show that their uh, intervention is is effective. They will publish off this, right? So they'll let it let it be known what they're doing, right? And so you avoid the Theranos problem, right? Of claiming claiming the world, but not actually, you know, having anyone review the results. They work with the FDA, right? And so the FDA, which, you know, is a really scary three-letter <laughs> acronym here, you know, in, in the recent, you know, three to five years, they've become much more friendly, I'd say, to entrepreneurs. Um, well, they'll grant you, you know, multiple meetings, you know, these pre-INDs or pre-pre-IND meetings, which means that they'll meet with you multiple times before your drug application is due to make sure you're on the right track, to give you feedback so you don't waste precious capital, time, money, all that stuff. And I think last but not least, I think they've they've picked really interesting indications, you know, to go after, you know, with pair you know, focusing on schizophrenia and the opioid epidemics, you know, that are that are real in this country, you know, Achilles focused on on mental health, you know, these are places where, you know, digital can have, you know, a real, you know, real marketable, you know, market improvement here. Curious what you have. Yeah, I mean, I I would say, um, over overarching, when we look at a digital therapeutic like Omada, or um, actually pair, we would say first, fit into the system, plug in the way that service plugs in today. So Tesla, you have a car with four wheels and a Maserati body, and inside you have no gas engine. You've replaced how it does it, but you don't replace what it does. So for example, with Omada, you're replacing uh, you're replacing how they're able to achieve diabetes prevention with their program. But what they do, as Ambar pointed out, is they do it in a way that is typically shown the way other interventions are shown, where they prospective clinical trial, they integrate into the health system as a provider. They actually bill insurance like a provider. So they fit into the existing payment scheme. They talk to physicians and scientists with clinical data the way they're used to seeing with drugs. And they have um, interactions with the payer and the purchaser that is, that is the employer universe that are similar to the other offerings. It's just how they do it is far more effective and far more um, uh, and far less costly. So I would say first thing is figure out what service you want to automate or improve, um, and then integrate with the system the way those that drug or that device or that uh, service offering does today. And I think everything else falls uh, out of that. Maybe a couple of years ago at this point, Malay Gandhi, former CEO of Rock Health, as you guys know, published a piece basically saying that in the last, I don't want to speak for him, the last decade or maybe five, five or six years, we haven't seen as many unicorns in healthcare. And I think his opinion was that it's because they've tried to do too much within the system or haven't been disruptive enough, perhaps, in terms of building outside the system and trying to take it all, take it all. How would you characterize, I don't know if you remember that post, but, but what are your thoughts on, on that thesis as you understand it? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's an interesting premise, right? And I think there's parts of it, which I would certainly agree. I think if you look at you know, the nurses and the hymns of the world, I mean, they've started outside the system, right? They're, they don't take insurance. It's all cash pay. That allows them a lot of flexibility in terms of, in terms of, you know, working outside of insurance from, from day one. But I think for other, you know, aspects of the world, um, in the healthcare world, like digital therapeutics, right, where, you know, there is a tried and true process to be considered a quote unquote therapeutic, right? A therapy that can be used to treat, you know, some, some disorder you have. Um, I think in, in places like that, Historically, there's been a lot of snake oil, right? You look at the whole vitamin space, you look at a whole bunch of, um, you know, herbal medicines, things of that sort. There's a lot of claims that have been made that haven't been validated, right? And I think what we, you know, what we have to do in healthcare is make sure, you know, there, there is a higher, you know, purpose in what we do, right? Um, and 
as as much as you know, I, I'd be supportive of new delivery models working, you know, quote unquote, outside the system and being very disruptive. You know, for the therapeutic end, you know, I I think there there's there's a reason, you know, why why we've done it the way we have, and you know, I'd be supportive of that. I do think that will evolve. I think there are synthetic clinical trials that may be interesting. I do think there is a role for looking at real world evidence for you know, reevaluating whether something should be approved or should stay approved and is safe or not, that might shave some time. So I think it depends, I think is, is the short answer. I mean, I would say, I, I don't, I don't actually agree with him. And maybe it was at that point of the, um, in the history of digital health, whether it's actually a billion or not, we have PillPack, Flatiron, Teladoc, and Irithm, one of our companies. And I can talk about each one, but I think, I think what each of them did was effectively enter the market as wolf in sheep's clothing. That's kind of how you have to work in healthcare, which is you have to appear to the flock like you're a sheep. Like you have to look like a healthcare company. You have to integrate with payers. You have to do the right thing. You have to have compliance. You have to have a physician on the phone if they have a physician on the other side of the phone. You have to have a nurse if they have a nurse. You have to fill out the paperwork. You can't say, you know, to hell with comp- uh, compliance, to hell with credentialing, to hell with we're going to create a new way of paying ourselves. I think you have to fit in the system. Look at PillPack. They became a retail pharmacy in a number of uh, space, uh, states before they came, became a mail order pharmacy. Their singular premise was changing, as Ambar said, the product of mail order pharmacy. And they didn't just do it by shipping drugs to your house. They shipped it to a different way, in a different format. And they did a, did a great job at that. Flatiron, similar story, but in oncology with respect to the uh, accumulation of data and then the creation of, of tools to to leverage that data. Teladoc, their vision was basically creating online healthcare on demand. They fit though into the existing mantra for how employers buy healthcare in a PMPM model. They look to the consumer like a doctor online. And, and so they were able to continue to add services and services and companies uh, and sorry, company customers to their um, to the asset to make it a very, very amazing entity. Irhythm was a company that fit into cardiac services. So they look like a cardiac service provider to the health system, to the payer, uh, and to others. But what they do inside is a wolf. It's wolf-like. They're incredibly profitable. They use lots of automation that's supervised by humans. But to the doctor and to the consumer looking at it, they're a very cool patch that gives you more data. But for all intents and purposes, the report looks similar to what you get from a Holter, just far better. Um, and so I'd say the wolf in sheep's clothing in healthcare is super important. You don't want to look like a wolf. You want to act like a wolf, but look like a sheep. No, I think it's, it's you know, when I was an operator, we were, I was at a company called Minute Clinic, right? Which we ran retail health clinics. We were probably the first, you know, really successful consumer healthcare company, right? Where we had a bunch of clinics instead of drugstores and grocery stores. But to Robert's point, you know, we used nurse practitioners and and physician assistants instead of doctors, right? And that was our big difference of how we actually became more profitable, you know, than, than if we put physicians there. And what we tried to do, you know, in your sheep clothing thing is we had physicians oversee it, you know, we had clinical decision support, you know, we had all these things. We would fax every single visit that we had to your primary care physician. We tried to do everything we could to work in the healthcare system. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, you know, the two points of margin leverage we had was one, we used lower cost, you know, labor, you know, NPs and PAs instead of MDs. And two, our tech, you know, we built our own electronic medical record. But on top of it, we built this clinical decision support tool, the CDS tool. And that made our visits so streamlined, you know, because we were seeing things that were, you know, that was built by doctors, by the way, we were seeing things and able to flow through the visit much faster that we were able to out-compete people, you know, traditional physician offices and other urgent care clinics. 
because of those two things. I 100% agree with what you're talking about. Before we move on to AI and monitoring and some of the other topics we mentioned, are there any other elements within consumer that you want people to go to go build or sort of you know things that you think are you might are super interesting? I mean, I made an investment in a, a company last year, and I don't I don't think there's just one way to attack this problem. But I think if the clinical part of healthcare is broken, and it's by by the way, it's very good at the individual level in a lot of situations, but the experience doesn't meet the you know kind of level one experience you get at a you know great consumer company. The other part is the financial aspect of healthcare for consumers. So we invest in a company called VisitPay, which helps to improve how you you know pay your bills uh, with multiple healthcare providers, multiple family members, and payment plans, et cetera, over time. Um, and they help hospitals get more from the customer uh, from the patients that owe them. They also improve the consumer experience and allow patients to time payments over time. But I think thinking about the clinical aspects of healthcare and then the administrative aspects of healthcare, especially the ones that touch consumers is our two really important areas to think about automating. Yeah, just one more I'd add to that. You, you had this great podcast on insurance on FinTech the other day. You know, one of the things we've seen in other industries that is just now coming in healthcare is this concept of peer-to-peer insurance, right? Um, you know, we seeded a company this this year called Decent, which is building, you know, really a kind of one of the first peer-to-peer insurance companies, you know, it's built off this association health plan model. And I think there's there's something to that. Um, and you know, I would I would encourage other entrepreneurs to think through what else has worked in other industries from a con- from a consumer's perspective, as you as it fringes on whether it's you know patient payments or actually insurance, um, to see if new unique models could be made that are more mutual like or more you know uh, group like than not. And what about Figure One, which is sort of like a uh, what is it like a Quora for doctors or sort of social network for doctors? Do you think do you think that's interesting? I've you know I've known Figure One forever. I think what they've built is a fantastic product. I think it's it's sticky and it's engaging amongst a certain demographic of user. You know, per, you know, predominantly you know physicians who are younger in their training and 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 going on from there. I think the 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 upside of what they could be doing um, from a product perspective is consolidating it as a knowledge management service, right? You know, because you said about Quora, right? Quora, you go there to find an answer to something, right? Instagram, you know, which is kind of what figure one looks like, you know, for those who don't know, it's kind of like an Instagram for doctors. So you find a cool x-ray, you find a cool bruise, <laughs> you find a cool stitch, you put it up there, people can like it, people can share it. Um, and it's interesting. Um, and you can actually have premises of, hey, like, I'm not exactly sure what disease this is. Can someone else, you know, from the crowd help me solve it, which is which is a really neat use case. You know, my, you know, well, I think those are all interesting. It's hard to monetize that in healthcare. You know, the question is who would pay for that. I do think what would be interesting there, you know, and it's a derivation of what they do, is if you were able to take some of these images they have, which we we can now, 2018, we can actually use image recognition to actually bifurcate them or trifurcate them into different areas, and then, take, you know, pick the best content there. You might be able to use this as a real, you know, core data set, you know, AI training set for, you know, clinical decision support or actually this is a training set for some sort of AI algorithm to help radiologists or physicians find the answer for something. It's kind of a two-step, you know, you know, path for them given where they are today, but that's a very unique data set. And I think there's something they can do there with it. Let's get into to AI a bit because a lot of, you know, technologists building something AI in normal, normal sectors tend to overrate, I think, the or you know, build the technology first, then try to solve a customer problem second. And in healthcare, that's even, you know, more difficult. So I'm curious where you think the opportunities to build big businesses are using AI. 
Yeah. So I think there's, there's so many. I think that that's, that's the great part about healthcare is that it's still somewhat static. You know, it's, you know, if you look at it in 2018, it's pretty much similar to how it was in 2008. I think there's a few big problems that haven't been solved yet in healthcare that AI could help solve. Uh, Number one on my list is quality. Um, It is a really hard problem for consumers, insurance companies, physicians to know who the other high quality physicians are. Um, And it's a complicated problem because certain physicians see more complicated cases, right? And so there is a risk adjustment that goes into that. Certain certain, um, institutions by definition have different protocols than other institutions, right? For cancer care, for instance, you might go to MD Anderson, they'll have one protocol, you go to MSK, they have a different protocol. And so it's a really hard problem, but it boils down to data. And you can actually use machine learning or AI to actually, I think for the first time, think about what quality might look like across a whole bunch of different variables. And that is actually invaluable um, for network management, for, for insurance companies. If you're taking risk as a health system, who else do you want in your network? Who don't you want in your network as a consumer? You know, how you, um, how you think about which physician to go to. You see companies like Amino who have started, you know, with this, you know, premise, you know, they've started direct to consumer. They have used some really interesting Medicare data sets to help you figure out where you can go. You know, they're looking at high, you know, high uh, volume prescribers as one, as one proxy. So I think you'll see a lot there. The second place in AI, I think imaging is, it's a really obvious one people have talked about, but I think people have really scratched the surface on that. I mean, imaging is, an, is in a bunch of different ways. You think about not just radiology, you know, looking at MRIs or x-rays. But you, you can look at ultrasounds, you can look at CTs, you can look at EKGs, you can look at EMGs, you can look at a variety of different data sets within healthcare. Um, companies like AliveCore have come a long ways in, in thinking through this problem. VizAI, you know, recently got funded. They've come a long ways in thinking through this problem. But there are a host of other things that can be done using AI and some of the data that's created every single day in a, in a physician visit. And kind of the third, I'd say, is, you know, in the realm of um, as you touched on pharma, there is a whole, you know, set of data we call phase four data, right? Or anything that happens after a clinical trial, after a drug, after a drug is approved. And, um, you know, we, in, in normal nomenclature now, we call it real world, real world evidence. And there's a bunch of companies that are collecting this data in terms of what happens in terms of safety. Do people have heart attacks, you know, two years after, you know, they start taking Vioxx, right? Would be the classic example. But now using AI and machine learning, you can actually comb through electronic medical record databases, right? You can comb through claims databases. You can comb through individual, you know, record death certificates, for example. It's like a real solid data source and figure out, hey, what can you piece these things together and actually come up with something that retrospectively, you know, actually comes up with a new insight and then prospectively you can see if it actually works. And so those are a few examples of things where we haven't seen winners yet emerge in any of those areas, and I'd love to see entrepreneurs focus on those. I would. I'll give you the. I'll give you the areas, but also there's kind of a general model that we've found for how machine learning, and I'll use machine learning because it's more deep learning that I think is is this first set of technologies that will be deployed in healthcare. Um, I think that machine learning and AI as a whole will be the single biggest from an industrial revolution perspective, the single biggest change we have in human productivity ever. And we'll create lots of great things and we'll create lots of new challenges socially because of it, including in healthcare. But um, I think the way it will enter healthcare, and this is something for entrepreneurs to think about is, I think of it as five steps for the way 
deep learning ends up in healthcare. Number one, you need a really good data set. What does that mean? You need like, for example, CTs, you need high resolution CTs that you'd find in most places. Two, you need really good curated data. So that means if you're going to train, for example, as Ambar said, some convolutional neural network to read CAT scans, you need CAT scans read by radiologists, not by ER doctors, because you need the right label applied to the right film. The problem there also is that neural networks don't come with a hierarchy of knowledge. They don't come with an ontology to the situation. And so, for example, if you put a thousand voxel bunny in randomly in a bunch of CTs, you can label things incorrectly. It'll find the bunny. We won't see it because we're not trained to look for bunnies. We're trained to look for other things in these CTs, but you can have, you can steer your data set the wrong way. If it's a, a bad data set or it's curated improperly. The third is getting the right model. Um, we have a ton of those. So that tends to be the, the easier part now that TensorFlow and other, th- other things are coming out. The fourth is a pathway to clearance. So these things require usually touching the FDA. So having that understood, usually it's a 510K, sometimes it's a de novo that requires clinical work that has to be done. And then five, a way for paying for it. So this goes back to fitting into existing uh, service lines. I think we've already seen machine learning be applied to cardiology. That's iRhythm. Uh, radiology, we have about 12 companies in that space. You'll see one or two win, but we also have deep work being done at, say, Philips and G, uh, Philips and Siemens. Hard to say where that's going to end up. Dermatology looks amazing. Google has done some of the most important work in the space so far by taking about 200,000 images of derm, dermoscopy and, and uh, derm images and uh, training a CNN to recognize features and then ultimately diagnose better than I think 26 of 28 dermatologists on the uh, validation data set. We'll see pathology EEG next only because those are not fully digitized yet in a way that the neural networks can be trained to uh, to work on them. And then we'll see genomics. And I think, so diagnosis will be machine learning first. And then um, the next part is clinical decision support. I think that's where we start to see AI in. I think of AI as more interactive. You have to have you know some layer of interactivity there. And I think in terms of deciding what therapies or what the next uh, step in a patient's pathway, you'll start to see AI take part in that. And then I think much later, we'll see actual machines actually doing the work of a human, for example, in anesthesia. I think that's an area where it's not going to happen in the next five years, but I think we're going to see areas where those machines that where you have a ventilator, you have drugs being pushed, all of that can be basically run on autopilot with a human supervisor who's an anesthesiologist doing very little. And I think that's where you'll see a machine manage a case manage a surgical case for the surgeon without the anesthesiologist turning every dial based on the physiology of the patient. So I think all of those areas create opportunity inside the walls of the hospital. Of course, there's lots of areas outside. So the company I mentioned before, they're using machine learning to figure out, predict who can pay their bill and when and who should be given a payment plan. We're seeing that on uh, companies that are trying to figure out how to integrate with payers better to reduce low adjudication rates. We're trying to, we're seeing it in pharma trying to figure out what subsets of patients, say, genomically would would have a higher uh, treatment effect for a drug. All of these are, being, are using this technology, which group of technologies called machine learning, whether it's a random forest or a neural network to, to create and then evaluate hypotheses of, of what the best kind of approach to a problem is. So lots of areas for machine learning to affect healthcare. Yeah, I think Robert, you know, has, you know, touched upon a few interesting areas there, you know, one of, one of which I'll add to, which is you know, another way to look at AI or ML in healthcare is that it's it's it can be a gateway to precision medicine, right? Because once you have all these data sets, you're able to actually individualize not just health treatments, you know, for for people, but also health plans for people. And so, you know, for example, um, 
once you know someone's genomics, right? Once you know their exact, you know, weight, body type, age, family history, etc., you actually might have a different dosage regimen for patient X versus patient Y. Not based off a physician thinking, hey, why don't you try one milligram, you know, and come back in two weeks and I might take you up to two milligrams or I might take you down to, you know, 0.5 milligrams. You actually will have a data set that tells you, hey, for 100,000 people like Robert, this is exactly what has worked for you. Let us start there, right? And be individualized. You expand that further and say, hey, instead of just a treatment plan, which is based off precision medicine, what if you had a health plan that was actually individualized so that, hey, we know, Eric, for you, you have a family history of X, Y, and Z. You've been tracking your weight ever since you were 25 and now, you know, you're, you know, you're 28 and we know that you're on this trajectory. Like we should have a health plan that incentivizes you to do something. And by the way, if you don't do that, we will we'll penalize you to, to, to do that, right? But it'll be strong personalization such that for Ambar versus Robert versus Eric, it's going to be highly different. I think same for actually like duration of treatment, right? I think, you know, in, in oncology, you see this a lot where there is new and new trials uh, or studies talking about is a mammography helpful, right? And, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you know, the, the, you know, the gold standard was a mammography is, is helpful. All women should get this screening X amount of time. Now there's some questions as to whether you should do it. I think with AI, I think what it'll end up as being is that a certain segment of people will, should, have an, should have a mammography, you know, every year. And a certain set, set of people should have it every three years, a certain set of people have it every 10 years. Right now, I think the ways that we segment those are semi-rudimentary, right? Because we're looking at a very large aggregate portion of whether it's women or men or African-Americans, et cetera. But I think AI will allow us to automatically figure out what some of those subsets are, maybe deep learning for, you know, per, per Robert's point. I think that'll change the paradigm of how we think about precision medicine and precision health. Well, I think, and if, if you don't mind, Eric, I can add on to that. I think the, we're both pretty excited about this topic. I think the, the other thing that these combination, this combination of technologies allowed to do is create truly mass customization for a patient or consumer of one. And I'll, I'll use an example of another company after a long thematic work we invested in this company, Cuventus. And what they're focused on is using the timestamp of every activity in a hospital to effectively configure the supply chain of a hospital to your unique visit to get you through as fast, as safely, and as efficaciously as possible. But to do that, they have to understand, think about, think about it as like an air, airport. They have to understand every other thing going on in the hospital so that if Eric had a CAT scan ordered, so he has belly pain, what are the, what are the things in the way of that that can be configured with other patients at the same time to make sure that his process goes as fast and safely as possible and the patient in the bed next to you in the room next to you goes as fast as possible quickly as possible as well and i think um this is it's it's not a hard it's not a it's not a hard problem to explain but it's a hard problem to solve without these technologies because so much of the data is real or near real time. It's inconceivable to have a set of humans do this, but machines can do it. And I think you'll see this across healthcare, whether it's on the payer side or on the clinical operations or experience side or on the pharma side, using this technology to configure what used to be very rigid capacity constraints in a very flexible manner to achieve amazing goals for a patient in a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, if, if Robert and I are riffing, I'm going to riff back right here. So I think I couldn't agree more. I think one of the areas where we've seen, again, other industries lead in healthcare be a laggard, but it's certainly going to pick up is in this concept of robotic process automation, right? This RPA concept. You look at companies like UiPath, Automation Anywhere, Blue Prism as the bigger companies. Um, I think there will be ways for 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 new companies to actually build healthcare-specific RPA tools. 
you know, that'll be true, you know, for hospital supply chains or whether it's, you know, prior auths and helping, you know, payers actually help, you know, pre-clear people to do it. I think it'll be true for billing, you know, and, you know, streamlining what we call revenue cycle management, which is a concept of actually getting bills paid. Um, and that, you know, has huge implications for everyone in the industry. And so there's, there's, we're just at the cusp of actually utilizing some of these existing technologies that are in many ways, open sources. I mean, there are sandboxes out there that can actually help entrepreneurs build companies for this. But it's this question is directing it towards healthcare, developing data sets for healthcare, and of course, building out the go to model, go to market models for healthcare. Just on the air for a second, what's the bottleneck for some for some of these ideas? Is it the technology? Is it something else? Is it What's holding some of these? Like, I feel like we've been talking about mass customization for a long time. I think for a while it has been the data sets. You know, I think uh, you know one one huge inflection point two years ago um, was Medicare opened up data sets for the first time. They had this concept of qualified entities, uh, and before before two maybe three years ago, only nonprofits could actually get this get these data sets. But they've now opened it up so for profits can get it. I think that's allowed a lot of companies to actually build off of it. I think two um, hospitals used to be again, you know, you know, one in clock two, three years ago, used to be very proprietary in terms of their data set being like, hey, this is our biggest asset in terms of um, training algorithms, etc. And certainly some health systems are still like that. But what we what we've now seen is that health systems are far more willing to actually share their data sets with with entrepreneurs and large companies. Um, in order to actually build something useful for them. And there might be a rev share, there might be an equity share there, but I think that's, that's a huge willingness. I think lastly, in, in healthcare, I think one of the biggest challenges is sales cycle, right? Like how do you actually get through that? And there's no silver bullet there, but what we're starting to see again with some of these, some of these companies, um, is a strong ROI case. And before, if you, you know, if, you know, rewind the clock a few years ago, like the ROI was still on the come, right? Like how do you really prove ROI for a health system or an insurance company or pharma company with this intervention, right? With this software that we're, you know, we're providing. I think now you've seen it time and time again where you're seeing, you know, companies like Qventus, right? Like really high ROI off off initial um, deployment, right? You see companies, um, you know, in the realm of docent, right? Which is in the patient experience space, you know, one year in fantastic ROI for their health system customers, right? And I think as more and more of these examples become well known and there's white papers case studies like the show the sales cycles sales cycles will shorten because who doesn't want to make more dollar off their investment i think it's a great question eric um, i agree with everything Ambar said i think the i would say the single biggest bottleneck if you think about the couple trillion we have in healthcare is probably on the provider side for right now each one has its own challenges the pharma side the payer side but I would say on the provider side where a lot of innovation is expected um, and is the most visible part of the system, I would argue, you have providers, there are 6,000 US hospitals, there are about 100 health systems that control 60% of the beds. And these businesses operate with a 3 to 5% operating margin. That's not great, right? And there are also lots of nonprofits. So they don't think about shelling out cash for experiments easily. Remember, their mission is first efficacy safety, which is the clinical part of care, maybe efficiency, and then cost, and then experience. And experience is rising up. You see chief experience officers now becoming part of the executive teams of these hospitals. But um, they're only starting to think like a Four Seasons or a Ritz thinks about how we interact. And so I, I still think of this industry the way aviation was, with some carriers who I won't name today, still is. The, the aviation does not mass customize their offering to me. 
I mean, Wi-Fi sometimes works on my United flights, but but it doesn't. They don't mass customize when I can leave, when I can land. They fit me in various categories, which is about as good as they can do right now. Healthcare is going to do a much better job, but its 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 mission is still to take the plane off and land it safely, which is get you through your procedure or treatment properly. And these other issues are becoming more important, but are still. I think secondary to the mission of good clinical care. And then I think the last is, is evidence. So the way, just like the way in aviation, evidence is required to change how a plane operates. They, they don't experiment. They, they, they don't experiment with us on board. Um, healthcare looks at really solid evidence before changing behavior. That's the language with, with which, um, health systems think about uh, new in, about innovation, new changes to what they do. And so you have to really walk in understanding that and being able to articulate the evidence, the significant evidence you have that their behavior should change. And we're still building that in a lot of these companies. Yeah. I mean, if it helps entrepreneurs, three really quick examples of mass customization in our portfolio that have, that have helped and if it spurs ideas. So one is in a company called City Block, right, which focuses on you know, it's a primary care practice focused on, you know, the duals and the Medicaid population launched in Brooklyn. What they do is they look at, you know, not just health information, but also the social determinant information of where people live, what they eat, how they get to work, how they get to the, you know, hospital, etc. And they will actually go to the home of these people and actually treat them in their home, which is very mass personalized, right? And every day they have a dashboard of people who need help and they will go there. Companies like Landmark and Iora, Oak, um, Chen Med, they've done this as well. And so it's really, it's really turned out to be a great way to actually change the cost of healthcare and also the outcomes. Second example is in the self-insured employer space. We're an investor in a company called Artemis. Um, Artemis collects all, it's a data warehouse. It collects all of the backend data from, you know, your HR systems, your health claim systems, your, your digital health interventions, et cetera, all the way such to the point where you can actually personalize what each employee should be getting as an intervention if you're an employer. It's a really powerful tool there, very database. And three is a company called Collective Medical Technologies, CMT, where they have a real-time information network set up between hospitals and nursing homes, you know, any post-acute provider um, and primary care physicians to know where a patient is in real time. Are they checking into an ER if they're going to a nursing home, et cetera? Within their system, they can write a quick note being like, hey, Eric is here again. It's his fourth time here with back pain. He's asking for opioids again. You know, is that's an alert, right? And so even though the platform is exactly the same, the alert that, hey, Eric seems to be wanting opioids a lot is now broadcast, you know, to every single person who's ever touched Eric in, in the healthcare system. That actually sets, sets, you know, an alert for that clinician or physician being like, hey, he might be an opioid abuser you know, you know, beware, right? And so those are how we think about, you know, some examples of how we thought about mass personalization here. And, and all three have shown that ROI case, which which is what we we all look for. As you mentioned data sets, I'm curious, just zoom out for a second. Have there been any use cases that you're really excited about or want people to go build? And maybe the answer is zero around the intersection of blockchain and healthcare, either now or in the future? I mean, I, I'll give you so yes, but I think, um, you have to be careful, and I'm not. I'm much more of an expert on neural networks because I've programmed them, and I'm blockchain. But I understand the technology to the point where I think I understand its utility in, in this space. And that is, I think blockchain as a um, distributed ledger could be super interesting if it were a private distributed ledger, for example, in say clinical trials. 
It might be useful. I've seen a number of companies in the space on the payment side of healthcare uh, for, say, bundles, for things where I can understand why I would what I would put on the chain. Um, I think I'm less I'm I'm less confident, more skeptical about blockchain for my medical records. I'm also less skeptical. I'm more I'm more skeptical, less confident about its usage. Um, say, for example, in aggregating clinical trial data in a public blockchain for uh, for CROs or for pharma companies, where that data is a major asset that they invest in. So I think some of the key considerations are, what is the actual tangible problem you're solving? Can it be private or public? And how much data will you be hanging off of it? Um, And is it worth the transaction costs? Yeah, I think think two two uses of blockchain that resonate with me a lot in healthcare. One is supply chain. Uh, Anything in the pharma supply chain, there are regulations where you need to know exactly where each batch was made, what lot number it was from, what factory it was from, when it got shipped, what ship it was on, etc. Um, companies like Tracelink exist that have grown to be fantastically large companies that don't leverage the blockchain. But this is, I think, the you know prototypical use of what the blockchain should be for. Two is I think the blockchain. If you take if you take one step back, it's it's a really incentive interesting incentive system, right? Where you can actually going going flipping to to crypto for one second. If there was a blockchain system that was tokenized, for instance, right, could you actually use that token as an incentive, right, similar to how, you know, airlines reward us for miles or, you know, you might get a deduction for going to the gym a certain amount of times. Could could you could you actually incentivize members to actually do, quote unquote, the right thing or for preventative care or sharing a health bill? Anything actually, you know, that could you know improve the overall value to the whole community. There, as I said, we we seeded a company called Decent, right, which is um, you know built off the blockchain, trying to reimagine health insurance in this way. Um, and I think there are some really interesting premises there for for that incentive structure that is is enabled via the blockchain. Uh, Robert, you mentioned medical records. Not excited on the blockchain. Are there any startups building something, or are there any opportunities using medical records where you think, "Hey, there's an interesting opportunity there"? Or is that just such a well? Actually, I, I'm incredibly bullish about um, what Apple is doing. Whether they actually end up, they, they will lead the market. Whether they end up driving it is too early to tell. But I don't know if you guys have connected your uh, connect your iPhone to, for example, my Stanford medical records. They ended up buying a company called Glimpse, and that company had built technology to basically log in through the now mandated patient portals. And so they're not getting all the data you need, but they're getting a huge amount of data around with the with the consent of the patient, basically around HIPAA to be used for any number of purposes. For example, enrollment in clinical trials, for you know pharma uses, for uh, possibly vertically integrated health delivery uh, options like HIMS or even like a teledoc. So I, I think unlocking the patient data from the EMR is interesting. I think if your question is, so that's, 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 I'm super excited about that. I have not seen a next generation EMR that I would um, invest in at this point. I think there needs to be one as a physician, I can tell you that, but I, I haven't seen one that makes enough sense to go up against two or three of the incumbents that have such a massive uh, dominating position right now to make sense. Well, we're going to send you Canvas Medical after this. <laughs> Let's transition to uh, you mentioned monitors or monitoring opportunities for monitoring. Um, where are you? Where should people be building that space? Yeah, or I think you, you know one of the you know monitoring's you know it's pretty uh, it's, a, it's a really broad space. I think there, there's a couple couple ways you can approach it. One is you think about it from a clinical trial perspective, uh, and this is, goes a little bit beyond monitoring, but most of the way clinical trials work today, it's it's in the four walls of a health system, uh, mostly academic medical centers. 
you need people to come in, you know, for not just for the first visit, for the second, for the third, for the fourth. And there's a huge dropout rate in clinical trials. You know, for someone to actually complete that whole intervention is, is, is tricky. So one question you have is, can you flip it on your head and actually monitor these people at home and go one step further and actually do some of the trials actually at their home or in the community doc, you know, doctor's appointments uh, or community doctor's facilities. Um, there are companies like Assigns 37 that have started doing this. You know, there are companies that are working, you know, more with community, you know, physicians like an Elego that are doing this. And I think there's something there because it takes the best of, hey, go to where the patients are, which I think is always what you should do. And then two is once you know where they are, and you can intervene, you can monitor them, you can incent them, you can actually collect better data from them, and you can have a better outcome overall. So I think that's one general space where there could be more and there should be many more companies trying to innovate there. I think the second part of it is, you know, more in the traditional sense of monitoring, which is, we'll pick on the elderly population here for a second, but th- there was, I think, 10,000 new people, you know, joining Medicaid per, or Medicare per day. Um, it's an enormous number. And what what do we do with those people as they go from 65 to 75 to 85 to 95, um, as they go from living at home to an assisting living facility to a nursing home to a hospice? And I think and for various various parts of that care cycle, you can have different elements of monitoring, whether that's actually in the nursing home for four walls or whether that's actually home visits, whether that's social determinants, there are, or whether it's just phone calls from your doctor. Um, so there are new codes here, right? So there's these cr- um, chronic care management codes that are now reimbursed every month to help incent physicians to actually check up on their patients in between visits. There are actually remote monitoring reimbursement codes that will actually reimburse entities to actually do this for the first time. And perhaps most importantly, there are now capitated plans, right, or capitated providers that capitated means that the actual provider is taking on risk, right, financial risk um, for doing this. So they're not being paid on a volume basis, they're being paid on a value basis. And so as soon as that paradigm shift happened, there is more incentive financially and clinically to do some of this monitoring. And I think today, I think it's, uh, it's clear to me that there's still no winner in this remote monitoring space, which is, uh, which is crazy, actually, that we're in 2018, and no one has emerged as, as a clear-cut winner in this space, despite the reimbursement codes, despite the advances of technology. And so I, I would love to see more entrepreneurs there that are working with some of those entrenched players um, to build solutions. I think there are three, th- three kind of categories of monitoring to think about. First, um, there are new monitors, um, and that, that can be anything that's a new analyte, like a new um, diagnostic to uh, you know, a new vital sign. I'll give two examples there. Then there are existing monitors that we make faster, better, cheaper, safer, easier to get. iRhythm I, I sits in that. EKGs were not new, but they just did it way better, 10x better, maybe 20x better. And then there are platforms, what Amber was talking about, companies like EarlySense that have this bed pad that gets you a number of vital signs without touching the patient, um, which allows you to more efficiently run a hospital because you can monitor patients without humans looking at them all the time. But I think each one has its own set of criteria to look at. So in the case of new, the, the biggest difference in the case of new existing and platform is that a new sensor, um, and I'll, I'll use an example, um, with Massimo and pulse oximetry. When pulse oximetry tells you your basically how much oxygen is in your uh, hemoglobin. Super important clinically. When it first came out, it was a new diagnostic. We had to learn clinically how to use it. What do we do when it's 90 versus 
at many hospitals, you admit a patient that has pneumonia with an 89% pulse ox, pulse sat, ox sat, um, whereas with 95, you'll send them home. Th- that rule base took a bit to develop. Whereas with EKGs and existing diagnostic, we know what to do if we see AFib. We know what to do if we see VTAC. Um, and then platforms are a mixture of both because platforms have an integration of sensors, even if they're all known for example, an early census case where we're still trying to figure out what the combination of existing diagnostics should look like. What is a bad or good one or what should we do with it? And so it ends up being a, in between in terms of the amount of evidence required and of course the the effect of that on the on the system. So I'm a big believer in all of this. I think the great part about monitoring, whether it's a new ex- diagnostic existing or a platform, is that um, if we can get ahead of disease or issues, we tend to save a lot more money on the treatment side. And also people are happier. So big, and I think there's big opportunities to make money, but these companies are not therapeutics companies. So the way in which they spend capital and prosecute the business has to be different. They, they tend to be a little bit more cost conscious and should be because the exits are not as large usually. Um, and the amount of time it takes can be the same as long or as long as, as a therapeutic. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. And one of the, one of the most interesting remote monitoring companies I've seen is a live core, right? I think they've, they've developed really interesting patents, really interesting data sets. You know, if you, if you read FDA cleared, um, you know, if you read through, you know, their comments on the app store, for instance, right? It's every day, I think you would find someone who says, you've saved my life or you saved my, my parents' life from this, right? What's the most interesting part about a live core is that it's completely consumer directed. Right. And, you know, it's very rarely as a physician saying, Hey, why don't you use a live core every day at home? Like at the, maybe at the cusp, you know, maybe at the beginning of that. But I think what, what it tells you and what it tells me and what it gives me hope for entrepreneurs in the space is that people want to know, actually, not, not because someone is telling them to do it. There's no Hawthorne effect. Like they actually want to know, you know, how are they actually doing? I think it's a far easier jump to make to go from people are already behaving in a certain way to now incorporating that into the larger system than vice versa. Um, and I think, you know, that that's for cardiology. Um, obviously, the, a more intensive example there is iRhythm. But I think as you think through what those readings are and are there consumer-friendly ways of doing that, whether it's via the Apple Watch or via, you know, a Fitbit or whatever, whatever other wearable device you have, or maybe it's user inputted, you will have, you know, a lot of consumers actually be the first movers here ahead of, you know, providers, pharma or payers. I think, and also the challenge, I, I completely agree. We should be giving consumers um, new diagnostics and new tools for existing diagnostics. I think that the biggest challenge to the system is as you go to an N of one, you also are, it's incumbent upon us to provide them tools, the consumer tools to understand that. So for example, if I give you a BRCA test, a BRCA test result, and you're thinking you, uh, as a male, you, you, what does this mean? There are a whole set of discussions that are worth having around, does this increase your risk for certain types of prostate cancer, for even breast cancer as a male, et cetera, that require tools beyond just the biologic test. So whether it's a new monitor or an existing one, I think case of a live core, I haven't seen how they've done it recently, but but it's a lot of education to bring a consumer up to speed in terms of what VTAC looks like or what are we telling you and what that means. There's some education required with these tests that make that, that's incumbent upon the companies who build them to uh, to disseminate to the consumers that they sell to. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you rewind the clock 40 years, right, one of the most controversial at-home monitoring 
test that was ever released, which was the at-home pregnancy test, <laughs> because it was a similar concerns, right? They're like, what do you tell a woman if she, you know, if she's pregnant, it's unexpected, you know, and consumers learned, right? Like consumers learned, they learned to talk to their OB, they learned, you know, how to do it on their, at home, the products have gotten better, you know, versus like the first generation pregnancy test to the current generation pregnancy test. And, and people have adapted. And I think, you know, now there's companies like Analyte that are doing at-home HIV tests, right? Which, you know, run the clock 20 years ago when there was a, you know, hysteria around HIV, you know, that would have been seen as, you know, what do you do? How do you counsel them? And now, you know, there's, there's tests at home for this. I think similar for genetics today, where it's really confusing, perhaps, you know, think about, hey, if you have, you know, the APO, you know, perhaps, you know, for, you know, for, for, for many new neurodegenerative diseases or BRCA or any of, any of these things. But I think whether it's with genetic counselors or just through patient education and better products, I think we'll, this will become the norm. I'm almost certain of it. Are there any other ideas that we haven't discussed, Robert, that you would like us to, to the entrepreneurs to go pursue as relates to some of the spaces you mentioned, either automation of human labor in, in healthcare or vertically integrated care? Well, there's, there's two that are much longer term. And again, I'll go back to what the, some of the most exciting and some of them we don't invest in, but, um, and for, I can give you reasons, but, but big, big ideas. So I'm still a huge believer in, um, the creation of organs. So I think, and, and, and I say that to be a bit provocative, but companies are already starting printing cartilage. If you've, if you've made it all the way through this episode, now you got to the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> is that investable for me yet? No, but it's getting there. And the reason is it's a combination of probably a drug because there's a bio scaffold with molecules that signal to cells on how to differentiate or grow. Um, and there's obviously live cells. And so, I am a huge believer in that kind of technology. I've looked at it in orthopedics and in, in, in the cardiac space. It's not near term enough for me to invest in yet, but I follow it relatively closely and I'm very um, excited about what the future holds there. So I, I think we will see a future where organs will be effectively printed um, with probably our own cells, hopefully, which will make the, uh, the post transplant uh, world for those patients way better and where, you know, Eric, when you when you, I'm not sure your favorite sport, but say yeah. tennis, basketball. Oh, you're you're a prime candidate. So when your knees go, you'll just replace <laughs> you'll replace the cartilage with your own stem cell derived cartilage printed uh, in, in a laboratory here in the U.S. or hopefully in Germany, um, somewhere in the Western world. I think um, we respect patents, but I think that the, and I think the other area which I'm uh, you know I came out of the the robotics industry is robotics. So we've seen it affect the spine surgery space, we've seen it affect ortho and these are these are obviously um uh, unicorn companies. Uh Mako bought uh, Mako was bought by Stryker for you know between a billion and 2 billion. Um I think those areas are super interesting as we go from the machine learning and AI components of diagnosis to clinical decision support to what to the Elon Musk problems, which is technology that interacts with the physical world, which is the hardest kind of technology because it integrates software and hardware. Hardware is hard. And I think I, I'm still a big believer in what robotic, whether it's robotic assisted, which is the company I was in, or true robotics, fully autonomous in the sense that it's doing a procedure on its own will do. And we're seeing it, for example, in ophthalmology. You know, laser laser therapy in ophthalmology, say for vision correction, is effectively robotic today, as I would define it. So those are probably two areas that longer term are interesting and they integrate a lot of the stuff we have in digital health. Both require, you know, some wet science or hardware, but still lots of software, obviously the FDA and, and lots of uh, thinking about how we change the delivery model. Yeah, I'd, I'd say three areas I've been thinking about. So one is if if you're trying to reimagine the healthcare system today, could you just imagine 
blowing up the most legacy part of it, which is the hospital. And, you know, is there a premise for having a hospital at home, right? Or a hospital outside those four walls? It's the most expensive place to get care uh, by a mile. And I think with the technology today, you're actually able to do a lot of this stuff outside the hospital. Um, and so there are a few companies, Contessa, you know, being, being the largest uh, that are trying to invent the hospital at home model. But I think that's one um, I'd encourage entrepreneurs to look at. Two, um, giant untapped market, I've seen close to no companies really tackling this, is thinking about how to incorporate alternative, call it Eastern medicines, into um, into our day-to-day lives here. That is an enormous market, whether it's Ayurvedic or homeopathic or you know Chinese medicines or Indian medicines, anything of that sort. There is a demand from consumers. A lot of it is snake oil. Uh, and so the question is, can someone actually make a company that you know, uh, solves for quality, solves for access, solves for, you know, guidance in this and make sure it actually works with the existing Western interventions that we're more used to here. I think there's something broadly in that space that I'd love to see be created. And then lastly, um, I think it's actually thinking about the concept of international. And so this is less so, you know, solving for healthcare in China or healthcare in, in India or uh, or in Europe or something of that sort. But I think there, there's two trends that we've actually seen more recently in healthcare. One is, or actually not just healthcare broadly, one is in in certain other economies, uh, we have seen technology advancement outpace the US. So if you look at consumer in China, for instance, the types of apps, the type of e-commerce that are happening in China now have outpaced the US. I think it's it's almost um, it's almost unquestionable how fast these companies have grown and how large they are um, and what portion of the population is using them. I mean, the, the small apps there on the consumer and have a hundred million to 200 million DAU. I mean, it is, it is a large and slash enormous number. And these companies have gotten there in three years. Similarly in healthcare, you know, those folks have gone into a telemedicine first model, right? And those companies and those, those countries have leaders in those spaces. Can folks, you know, take what they have done in these economies and bring them back to the U.S. kind of a boomerang type model. I think similarly, we've we've seen early movers in the enterprise buying cycle, whether it's employers or hospital systems, actually be international companies. And so this is, again, this is a, wouldn't have been said three years ago, but you're talking about AI and healthcare. We've now seen three or four examples of companies get their first five, 10 hospital clients in Taiwan, in Singapore, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, before actually getting them in the US, which is which is wild. And so I'd love to see some of those technologies that are being incorporated for those environments come back to the US because um, I think there's there's plenty of opportunity. Zooming out a bit, oftentimes people subdivide the healthcare space by, by who you sell to, whether it's consumer, payer, provider, self-insured employer. Thinking about the uh, provider and payer space, and we've talked about a bunch of ideas already, are there others that you're either really excited about that, man, here's a real problem providers have, here's a real problem payers have that you think you know, someone should go build around or, or the converse of that, is there an idea that is constantly being pitched to you in either the prepare or provider space that you're like, it's not, not, not going to work as entrepreneurs should stop trying to pursue companies in that space. I mean, I think to your first, what I think I understood your first question was, I, I think there's a huge opportunity. We, we sold one of our investments last year that did this to again, automate parts of pharma. And certainly pharma R&D, you can look at estimates between 800 million and 5 billion to get to a new drug to market. A lot of that is unnecessary because of antiquated processes. Having worked in pharma at Merck before, having consulted with the fir- firms in that industry and, and now watching, you know, two portfolio companies interact, 
pharma is great at a lot of things. It's not great at the operations, efficient operations of of R and D, and and it's getting better. But I think um, uh, as as Ambar brought up in terms of trial recruitment, even at the clinical stage or even preclinically, managing these processes and moving them quickly um, with things other than paper and pencil, even software is is where we are today. So I think that's one area. On the commercial side of pharma and, and med tech, I think we're also going to see the reduction in the number of reps. I think the communication with the providers and even the consumers is going to be much more direct and not going to be mediated from human uh, by human to human uh, in as many cases as we have today. And I think that's going to change the profitability of those companies for the better and and um, the the profile of what they do and obviously the metrics by which they launch new products. So I think that, that that's another area. And then I think on the purchaser side where Ambar is made investment and, and so have we, I think um, employers are taking a bigger role in the in the healthcare of their employees. And so I think I think Artemis is a great example. I think as those employers understand their healthcare spend like they understand any other spend that's that big for their company, dissect it that way and manage it that way, you'll see uh, a new things pop up that are helpful for the the system. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few things. Um, you know, we think on the payer provider side, we view self-insured employers as payers. You know, in aggregate, it's somewhere between 800 billion and 1 trillion of, of healthcare spend per year. It's an enormous number. And we think there's, this is by definition, in a trillion dollar market, you can have multiple, multiple winners. So we've made five investments in that space, you know, whether it's Castlite or Collective Health, Artemis, Centivo, and One Medical, you know, um, as a huge employer business. You know, we've been really excited to support more and more, more of more of those models in the self-insured employer space. I think one of the places where we've now seen a real, you know, avalanche of ideas is in terms of how do you serve those self-insured employers for their specific employee needs. So we've seen it in diabetes and in pre-diabetes and you know, hypertension and fertility and in pregnancy and oncology. And there's a whole host of, of companies that have, that have been created there. there there's, two, there's two ways to, that world will play out. One is a best of breed world, right? Where there will be the leading fertility company that's helping employees deal, deal, deal with that life cycle of, of health. Or, you know, there will be a platform play, right? Where there will be a similar company for fertility and mental health and diabetes and hypertension, and it's all kind of bundled together. I think it's still unclear which one that, that will be, but I think for entrepreneurs, as you consider that whole space, I think those are the two macro trends that are happening there. And, you know, the fight that you're about to walk into <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking about um, entering that space, but without question, with a trillion dollars to spend, there's a lot of opportunity there to, to move the needle. Guys, thanks so much. This has been an incredible, incredible conversation. Where can people find you guys uh, online? What, if anything, should they stay tuned for? Any last minute plugs? Sure. Entrepreneurs, anyone can reach me. Uh, email us ambar at maverickcap.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter. Handle is at ambarbh. You can, you can find me at, on the Norwest website. You can look up Robert Mittendorf. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Rem and then LinkedIn under my name as well, Rob, Robert Mittendorf. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.